Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So, Robert, here we are um, nearing the end of uh, February, and maybe we can start out by looking at the most recent uh, US inflation data. Um, can you um, sort of tell us where you think we are uh, and, and how markets have been reacting uh, what's been the response? Because I think one of the things that that we've reflected on here is is this. Um, well, in 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 physics, you call them feedback loops, and then I think Soros rechristened them reflexivity. But this is the idea that sort of actions in one area lead to responses in another area, which then replay to the original place. And so, you know, one of the things we've been reflecting on is the fact that the uh, the more the markets think that inflation is beaten and therefore uh, interest rates are likely to come down. So the Fed finds itself in the position where it has to tighten further because of the market's reflex reaction. So so maybe you can talk about inflation, where you think we are, what markets are doing and what that then might mean for uh, the Fed's ability to achieve the goal that it's been it's set out to achieve, which is to bring inflation back down towards its 2% target. Yes, yeah, so I think the the broader context uh, has certainly been those there were good news. So the good news was coming, which is why the market was react uh, was reacting and, and rallying. And really, it started from October, as as we talked about. In a sense, that was where liquidity started coming back into the markets, and at the margins, data in the US was getting better. Data actually in Europe was was better as well. The the, the recession that many people expected in Q four. Uh, was narrowly avoided, certainly a slowdown, but it wasn't quite as bad. And there, I, th- I suppose there are a few drivers. Um, the drivers that we can easily see, clearly the, the problems were China was uh, was uh, sort of locked uh, with their zero COVID policy. China then suddenly reopened. In Europe, we were expecting energy crisis as really the catalyst um, uh, for a lot of problems and recession. And sure enough, actually, that was that was avoided. So warmer weather, combination of warmer weather, finding other sources of energy, um, really energy prices starting to fall was, again, beneficial for growth and also beneficial for falling inflation. And that brings it really to the third part is it was about, as, as you mentioned, Ian, about the Fed policy. And the market was waiting for this moment where we get the disinflation, inflation peaking coming off, and that foretold uh, really policy potential easing in the future. And it was a combination of those three things that was leading the market to rally. But in that that nature of feedback loop, the danger was actually the markets became priced to perfection. So really expecting all the good news, good economic data, and we can still cut rates to avoid a a deep recession. Um, But the problem was the more the market rallied, the easier financial conditions became 
which actually, uh, in in a way, not only does it improve um, economic data in the short run, but that makes it more likely then in, that uh, you, you the, the Federal Reserve actually has to raise rates higher. So I, there were two real dangers. The danger one, we slip into recession earlier. Danger two, data is a bit better, and suddenly the the central banks are forced to to raise rates faster. Than, than people are expecting. So we had some of the good news sort of between October and January. February is where we've, we've felt that, that sort of twist back the other way. And finally, the good news came in too good. And that is the risk of the market reacting to, it was priced to perfection, and the risk really that the Federal Reserve is going to actually, and other central banks are going to have to keep rates higher and, and raise, rates, raise rates faster. Um, so I think that 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 was that was the context. I would say definitely data picked up in the U.S. in December and January, and we saw it in January. Non-farm payrolls, the non-manufacturing ISM number suddenly went back into expansionary territory, and more recently, it's been the the combination of stronger retail sales consumption in January. The new home sales data actually was pretty pretty strong, and lastly, that core PCE. So yes, suddenly the consumer spending a lot more. And we, we've seen um, that actually the income to, to consumers was probably a bit bit higher than had been expected. Uh, so there's more excess savings, which means probably we're going to have a, a softer, more moderate slowdown. But more worrying is core PC was then a bit stronger than people are expecting. So the PC deflator, which they watched quite closely, was at 0.6% month on month, uh, which surprised to the upside. And really, over the last year, year on year, core PCE, which really sp- pulls out the energy and uh, food components that are more volatile, that really is where you can think inflation may settle down more towards that number. That's still running at 4.7% year on year. Again, surprising a bit to the upside. So suddenly, um, I suppose, when you're priced to perfection, it only takes a little bit of a move to realise, actually, we're not going to have complete soft landing, and it's more likely rates are going to have to go up. So that's really been the backdrop of of um, of the month is the actual expectation rates will need to be a bit higher. And we've seen the curve across the curve in the US go up, go up by more than 100 basis points around the one-year to two-year mark, a bit less further down the curve. So the, the, I suppose after a good month, January, everything going up, actually, as we stand today, um, a day before the end of February, both bonds and equities are down, um, sort of global global equities, US bonds, down about 2.6% for the month. So it's been a negative month again for both of them. Um, so what, what's the bigger picture? I suppose the bigger picture is to say, yes, actually, we are still in this disinflationary period, but data is going to be more volatile. Not only is it more volatile because we've had COVID distortions, so we're still having that impact of actually um, the the big distortions on goods prices. That was part of the upside surprise to inflation. Goods inflation was suddenly a bit higher. Non-durable goods uh, was up 0.8% for the month. That was some of the the distortions. So some is still of the data is distorted by COVID. There are a lot of seasonal adjustments that could again be behind it, which is the danger. Data anyway is volatile. Fewer accurate responses, arguably, um, in the last few years to some of these surveys. And we have uh, the added impact of sort of short-term warmer weather. All these excuses have been given for why the data might be a bit hot. But I think for, for an investor, you should realise it's going to be volatile. We're going to have these ups and downs. And that danger is when markets get priced to perfection, 
the volatility spills over into asset prices. Um, so I suppose the, the, it doesn't change the longer term picture, but it does bear that uh, sort of bring to people's attention again that arguably this is a bear market rally and there are dangers on both sides of the equation. The economy gets hotter than you expect. We're going to have a further tightening that will ultimately lead to recession maybe a bit later or data we see a bit more volatility in this data and we look and maybe uh, we do see the slowing a bit sooner than than people are expecting now um, and we it tip into recession so there are dangers on both sides albeit um, the good news is it may be a more moderate slowdown than than, than people had previously expected. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 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 it's. I think the strength of the U.S. economy has has um, you know perhaps surprised everybody that it, it's resilience and in particular the sort of continued strong growth in um, uh, uh, in, in incomes. I wonder they're just quickly looking at the, the Federal Reserve. Um, so as you say, so tricky twenty twenty two. Then we see a bounce in January. Uh, and then we see um, asset prices coming off in February as people price in the impact of um, the data not being quite as good as they hoped and uh, or data not slowing quite as much as people hoped and therefore the expectation that perhaps the, the Fed would need to tighten further than they thought it was going to need to tighten in January. So one can sort of imagine this uh, seesaw of uh, good, bad, good, bad. Um uh, to, to what extent do you think are, are the Fed looking through that? So obviously markets are uh, watching closely what they think the Fed is going to do. Uh, is the Fed watching markets closely? I mean, do you have both of them watching each other or do you think the Fed is trying to look through this? I think the Federal Reserve traditionally has looked at the looked at markets in terms of looking at the broader financial conditions. Now, why I caveat it slightly um, is more recently we've had some rather bizarre comments, uh, really from from Powell that uh, financial conditions were actually uh, not not becoming easier um, as markets had um, had uh, had, sold, had uh, rallied over the last couple of months. So that, I suppose there was there's arguably less focus on financial conditions at the moment and more focus on inflation. So, whereas in the past, there may be even more attention, the Fed put, markets sell off, suddenly we've got to respond. I think we still got to recognise that inflation is foremost uh, central at the, of the Federal um, Reserve Governor's um, concerns at the moment. So, given inflation is the big concern, which are the areas that they're looking at most closely? And I think it's when I, when I talked about that core inflation, it's thinking about services inflation that's not infected as much by uh, sort of volatile energy and food prices. And there, I think we are seeing inflation looks a bit more persistent than people are expecting. So, yes, they may look through the market data a bit more, and they're, they're probably more likely to accept a bit more downside volatility to equity and credit prices in order to defeat inflation. So I think if we inflation is the key reaction function at the moment. And until we see that core PCE number really persistently decline, and we're going to see volatility on it, we, we, the Federal Reserve may look through the market data and be, be, be have its foot firmly on the, uh, the raising rate uh, and tightening um, side of the equation. So I think that's what we've we've seen the market realise that in the last month, and there is this vulnerability to data. But the Federal Reserve, we should think about it as fixated on on inflation for the time being. 
ultimately growth will have to slow quite a bit more and we'll have to see unemployment rise maybe even by a percentage point in the US before um, growth and and um, the, the focus on our employment starts to become more of the the focus for the for the central banks. Well, let's let's go from from inflation to uh, to an asset class, or inflation interest rates for that matter, to an asset class that's um, most directly affected by them, which is which is bonds. And um, clearly, twenty twenty two was uh, a shocker uh, for bond investors, and um, you know we were uh, in the in the intentionally uh, lucky position of uh, not owning them at the, the start of the year. Uh, and that, that was a, a great friend for, for us. But the years passed and we're in a, in a different position. And I think as you've hinted at before, Robert, you know, the prognosis for uh, uh, bonds looks uh, a little bit better now um, uh, because of the fact they've repriced and uh, it looks as though inflation is more likely to be falling uh, in the months ahead than, than rising. Patche, some of the data that came out recently. So does that mean that uh, we can, um, having discarded, not that we followed it, but if you were a 60-40 investor uh, uh, at the start of 2022 and consequently have a pretty miserable year, uh, can you, having put that behind, you can tell, well, you know, 60-40 is back. Um, uh, It's okay. Bonds are contractive and we can go back to doing what we've been doing for many, many years and we'll be fine in the long run. Where are we on this question of bonds, how we use them and how we think about them? So I think we we were earlier in the in the in the case of saying really 6040 is not your friend. And sure enough, we last year was, uh, I suppose, a, vindica- a vindication of that. And it was one of the worst years for a 6040 investor in the last hundred amongst the worst one or two years um, over that period. Now, the the big danger was you started a period where bond yields were so low, close to the lower bound, that really they couldn't provide you the protection, even in a bad environment. There wasn't much further to go um, because there was the storage cost of, of cash really gives you that lower bound. Even if it's negative rates, you, you have a lower bound of, of where um, interest rates can go to. Now, interest rates have risen it's far more of a two-sided um, dilemma in the case that actually in a recessionary environment, interest rates can fall, bonds can still provide protection. So in those different scenarios, a recessionary scenario, bonds can still now provide you protection. So there's more of a role um, than in the past. And given the outlook, although we've mentioned data's got a bit better, is still the chance of recession in the next six to 12 months is, is elevated. And certainly the bond markets are, are suggesting that's that's very likely. Bonds themselves can have uh, play a role. They do provide protection in a recessionary, disinflationary environment for portfolios. So bonds as a tool, yes. But I think where that's sort of the shorter term picture, and that's why actually from having no bonds and very limited bonds the last five years, uh, also, actually, we've added some 30-year government bonds to portfolios at the end of end of the year as a small protection, 5% of the portfolio to protect against um, the, the risks of recession. Having said that, we need to take the longer-term picture into, into regard. And whereas 60-40 was a great portfolio, structural portfolio to have for the last 40 years, it was a great environment for financial market investors. You had falling inflation over the period, falling interest rates, meant both bonds and equities would give you a great positive real return. 
But also, it was generally disinflationary recessions that came. So bond was the protection you needed in that in that environment. Bonds gave you the protection. So when equities fell, it was a disinflationary period. Bonds went up. Where we are today, now looking forwards, bonds may give you protection in recessions, as they've always done for periods of time. Bond yields can fall even in inflationary periods. But if you're in a period where interest rates either trade sideways, or more importantly, you're going to an inflationary period where over the longer term, arguably yields are going to rise, but certainly inflation could be rising to a higher inflation regime. That's the regime where bonds in the long term have a real headwind. And we only need to look at history for the example. Between 1950 and 1980, that was the complete reverse of the, 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 um, the, the, the last 40 years in that we post the Second World War, we had a period of rising inflation. And in that period, that's where bond investors really get damaged. Last year was the example where rising rates and fears of inflation in the short term can lead to short-term capital loss but longer term, where bondholders get really decimated, is higher inflation. And in that inflationary regime, bondholders over most regions around the world for each of those three decades had negative real returns. So negative returns after inflation. And that's the risk. The risk in not shorter term, we may have recessionary risk. But in the medium term, the inflationary risk is there. A lot of the changes we've seen on the supply side have and uh, for, uh, changing demographics in China, uh, climate change transition, the rising geopolitical tensions. The, the, we start this period with an extreme overhang of debt in the world. And the answer to that, really, we need inflation to get out of that problem. All those longer term issues we've talked about before right, it give give a increased risk of, of inflation in the medium to long term. So that's why as an investor, I think you can't just set and forget 60-40. It may do well, it will certainly do better than last year. Um, and you want bonds in a recessionary period. But this is why we I've described it as in the past, bonds are no longer a structural secular asset that you just hold long term. And that's fine, you can set and forget arguably in a more volatile period and certainly higher inflationary risk period, you want a more diversified portfolio. You want bonds as a cyclical asset to hold in times of recession, but not really in other times. Or certainly you shouldn't expect positive um, real returns. Um, And I think the last three months give an example, even in the miniature of, of that, we've had very volatile markets, equities and bonds. December was pretty bad for equities, suddenly up in January, down in February. Bonds did well in January, but they were they were down in, in December and down in February. To get a, um, a smoother ride, really, you need diversifying assets. So although we've added some bonds, we still have more of our diversification from alternative strategies and from um, portfolio hedges and being dynamic with our asset allocation. And that's why in a month like um, February, you can have a smoother ride and have assets which are actually up while equities and bonds are both down at the same time. So I, I think for a long-term investor, you do need to think a bit more differently than 6040. And although a lot of people now are decrying the death of 6040, certainly when you look at where the assets are, most portfolios are still a, some form of 6040 um, uh, portfolio that, 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 that's out there. So we need a big change in capital allocation if really inflation risk does rise. The markets are still very much positioned for a period of the last 40 years rather than the period which we may be facing in the future. Maybe we just spend a, a minute or two on 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 alternative strategies. Uh, you touched on the the use of uh, alternatives. 
in place of bonds because uh, uh, they've just been, you know, less attractive. And even though marginally they're more attractive now, uh, uh, it's only relative to uh, perhaps where they were last year. And in the long run, uh, they face um, an uphill struggle. But 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 are alternatives? I mean, should we expect to see alternatives uh, in the size they are at the moment for the long run, Robert? I mean, is that just one of the things we have to to get used to? How how do you think about uh, the use of alternatives in the portfolio? Both now we talked about now, but I meant going forward in the future. Do we always have a substantial allocation to them? Do you think? I think you have more than you did as your neutral position the last forty years. But where we are today is not where we'll be in a year's time. So at the moment, there is this heightened risk, heightened um, volatility in markets, uh, the risk of earnings recession to come that we that we do expect to slow down economic growth. So at the moment. Your allocation to alternatives is probably as, as large as it's going to get. Um, in more benign economic environments, certainly you'd rather own equities. That's a real asset which will give you a better long-term return than, than alternatives. Um, so uh, we're probably at a position of, of maximum size. And equally, if interest rates do continue to rise, um, that, that marginal decision between bonds and, and um, alternative strategies actually tilts more in the favour of bonds. So the, it's not going to be the same forever. We're at, still at a point of relatively low interest rates and a risky environment. So that's why hedge funds alternatives are at a higher um, percentage weight. But um, I think this is an environment where you do need to be a bit more dynamic. And in the future, as well as well as hedge funds and alternatives, I think more assets, if we have a higher inflationary risk, will will turn into other um, protective assets like commodities or, or real assets. They will give you more of a protection in an environment of better growth, but also riskier inflation. Um, so it, it is a mixture, and I don't think the answer is is the same forever. There is an element that you do need to be a bit more dynamic, albeit there'll be relatively more hedge funds for for the foreseeable next, you know, the next five years than than you needed really in the last ten or, or fifteen. Yeah, and I think embedded with that is is a is an important message. We all of us talked a lot about the nature of. Uh, the landing in the US, be it hard, soft, no landing, crash, um, all those analogies uh, based on planes, and and it's not perfect. But if I was to stick with it with a with an aeroplane or flying analogy, I, I do think that one of our important messages is that if there was a uh, uh, an autopilot option that was available in the path that in the past, that is to say, you could set your autopilot to a mix of assets, call it 60-40 or whatever it may be, uh, and and leave it there. And on a multi-year horizon, you would be in a pretty good place. Our message is that that autopilot option is really not available to us now. We need actively to uh, to fly the plane, look at the instruments, you know, monitor altitude, uh, wind speed, all those sorts of things that I don't really know about, uh, having never flown a plane, but but keep a close eye on the instruments and the conditions and to fly the plane in a very live and active way. I think an important part of our message is, is that uh, investment autopilot uh, is definitely not an option for the, uh, for the future. Um, Changing tack a bit, uh, we've had the the anniversary last Friday of the uh, first year of war in Ukraine following the Russian invasion in February last year. Uh, It was uh, epochal and we are still um, 
I suspect, dealing with it in many ways. But Robert, maybe we should talk a bit about that. It is topical. And perhaps you can talk about what you think the outlook is from here, and I guess most pertinently, what that might then mean for uh, markets, both you know commodities, which we talked a lot about, I remember, in the um, uh, sort of tail end of Q1 and Q2 last year, but also more broadly, um, other asset markets. So I think clearly the, the, the biggest impact is for those involved, the hum, sort of humanitarian crisis of, of the people in, in Ukraine. When we look at these sort of economic um, consequences and the shock to the system, I break it up into two parts. There were the fears we had going into it of, of how large the, the damage both to growth is and, and on the upside to inflation would be. And certainly there was a shock. And, the, and we'll, we'll see some of the consequences of the shock. And inflation last year was higher than it would have been, which meant interest rates went up faster and growth was a bit slower than, than it would have been. So there was that big shock to the system. I suppose the good news was actually the economies were a bit more resilient than we, we expected, um, certainly in the last last 12 months. The, that chance of a really big energy crisis in Europe was narrowly avoided. Um, so for a combination of saving energy, diversifying supplies, actually growth in Europe, the European economy was more resilient. That was one of the fears, the casualty um, would, have, would have been Europe um, in, in that case. And linked to that, I think energy prices, they certainly soared to, to astronomical levels and there has been an impact on um, consumer spending and, and disposable incomes. But we've seen energy prices come off. So, again, the shock was maybe not quite as big. And even in Russia, for the Russian economy, we thought the damage would be a lot greater than it was. Arguably, yes, the, the economy was damaged by sanctions, but maybe not as much as um, one would have expected or hoped. Partly it's because of the big surge of, of um, uh, into their current account surplus that they got from actually being able to sell their energy supply elsewhere. So I think shock to the system, yes, but actually there's been some somewhat resilience. I think it's very difficult for me to say with any certainty about what the outcome is going to be. It looks very murky at the moment and unfortunately looks like a more protracted crisis. I think some of the bits that are relevant to investing that we can pull out, um, I think the first one really is on a geopolitical level, what, what has it meant? And it's been a big reordering of uh, relationships. Russian energy was a huge risk and a supply to Europe. It will never be so again, but certainly for, for many decades to come. And that's arguably a good thing that energy dependence has been removed and we, we're, we're seeing Europe manage to um, reorientate itself. Now, there's still risks to come if we have worse um, winter in the next 12 months. We're, we've not completely reordered the system, but certainly there's been some positive change. Slightly for Europe's side, we should say, Europe has become more dependent for energy um, and many things on the US. So that, arguably, it's been very good for, for gas suppliers in the, in the US um, so, and, and for, for industry and, and energy suppliers in the US. So I think that there's been somewhat of a, a tightening of the relationship between um, Europe and the US. On the negative side, really, it's sent Russia into the arms of China. In many ways, Russia is going to become a vassal state of China. Um, 
And certainly it's tight, uh, it's heightened the tensions between the US and, and China. So for, for an investor, the really big damage and for any person living on the world is, is there the risk of nuclear war? And arguably that risk has gone up, even though it still remains relatively small. Until we see these tensions removed, it just keeps getting uh, tightened. Russia in the last couple of weeks has um, pulled out of one of the nuclear treaties. That, that risk is there until it isn't. And, and at the moment, it's it's sort of a heightened risk. And the tensions between US and China just keep getting ratcheted up. So that I suppose a lot of the things, the support we've seen the West give Ukraine in terms of arms, we didn't expect that 12 months ago. It is, it's been steadily increasing. Um, and the risk now is China provides more support to Russia. That's a live risk. We don't know exactly where it's going going to tend towards, um, but it is there. And if we think in terms of economies and currencies, it's pushed in that direction, that bifurcation of the world that we we talked about. And longer term, does it mean we're going to see more of a competition to the US dollar from other currencies, in particular the I think, yes, it does. Noticeably, when you look at the support, it's been the Western powers supporting Ukraine, but arguably a lot of the emerging market world has stayed pretty neutral. Uh, India's benefited from from supplies of energy, and China clearly, some of LATAM countries as well. So we're seeing a lot of the emerging world trying to stay neutral and try and benefit from both sides, maybe, but it's not been um, sort of a unified response. So the the threat from uh, to world growth, to world safety, is still still remains there, and arguably that shock to the system did accelerate these trends. It accelerated that geopolitical trend of tension. It accelerated the risk of inflation, which hasn't gone away. So although we've we said we've benefited and 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 it's been the economies have been more resilient, inflation is more sticky than it would have been absent the war twelve months ago, and we're not through um, the problem of inflation. Inflation is coming off at the moment. But medium-term inflation risks arguably were were increased, turned on, and the war acted as that catalyst. So we're going to feel those effects um, in in economies for for many years to come. So we still have a lot of the tensions. A lot of those um, medium-term trends uh, were were heightened by by the war, and we haven't got a resolution. So unfortunately, a lot of the the threat uh, remains. And it's another of the reasons why you're going to face headwinds um, as an investor, um, is a lot of these these threats of geopolitical tension, climate change, uh, higher energy prices, still uh, 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 sort of headwinds to, to your growth. Albeit, um, I should say, ending on a bit more of a positive note, there are still lots of opportunities. Well, broad markets are not very cheap at the moment. There have been a number of dislocations, a number of opportunities to make money um, for, for, for investors. So the one we talk about quite a bit, value spreads, still very wide. Being a value investor in the coming years is going to benefit you. Um, also, secondary markets in, in private equity um, look very appealing. There are forced sellers that there wouldn't have been because of some of the shocks of last year. In reinsurance markets, again, a num- combination of factors, both event risk that happened, um, also volatility in markets, reducing capital in that area, again, producing the opportunity with reinsurance rates at very, very high levels, the opportunity for investors. So I, I think, albeit we, we've seen a number of the risks and tensions heightened by Ukraine, it has unlocked some of the, the opportunities um, 
for, for dynamic investors to still add some value to portfolios. Thank you, Robert. And, and reflecting on uh, what we've talked about today and mindful that we are coming up to the third anniversary of Talking Capital, be it that it's only been in podcast version since the start of this year. And I think about the topics we've discussed and I think back to uh, late Q1, Q2 2020 and things were, then we're in the midst of, uh, of COVID and the uh, cardiac arrest of the global economy that that, um, that, that un, un, unleashed. But the themes we've been talking about today are themes we talked about back then. I was reflecting on that, the risk that we saw ahead of inflation, and that clearly has, uh, has come to pass. The fact that bonds were uh, uh, more of a risk asset than people realised uh, because of their not their exposure so much to economic conditions, but their risk to risk they face by uh, uh, being linked to inflation, and now fear that inflation is on its way. And I remember us talking a lot about the end of the unipolar world and the uh, primacy of the U.S. being relatively challenged by China, and that's very much what we've seen accelerated, as you've described, Robert, by by what we've seen in in Ukraine, where we're sort of back to a, I don't know, a late 1950s world order where you've got a Russo-China axis, albeit that the key player is now China, whereas then it was Russia facing uh, uh, peripheral actors on the Eurasian uh, landmass arranged against them. So uh, the future uh, echoes the past. So um, lots of things we've talked about are are coming to pass. And uh, if you've enjoyed Uh, this uh, podcast thank you very much for joining us and do please subscribe but in the meantime um, uh, goodbye and uh, all good wishes